Welcome back to the Hemingway List podcast of excellence, talking about book three, chapter 11 of War and Peace. Any thoughts about Tolstoy's clock metaphor? Do you think it matches up with his description so far of the workings of the army? What did what did you make of the interactions between Dolgurikov and Andre? Comment about Dolgurikov's response to Andre. Ripster66 says, I loved the clock metaphor and read it over a few times to really absorb it. Watching large gears move slowly only to catch and start the movement of another. Smaller gears that turn faster seem very apt when describing the mechanics of going to war and manoeuvring masses of people around. The picture of a large complex machine producing lots of movement but only moving a clock hand a fraction of the face is compelling. All the assistants whirling about it and it only moves the machinery of war a small fraction. Yeah, it's a pretty effective metaphor. I think he kind of hammers it a bit too hard though. He does that a few times in this novel with metaphors where it's almost like for a while there he was just describing how a clock works. I think it's almost like that day he learned about how clocks work and just wanted to wanted to show off that he knows the inner workings of a clock and spent half a page describing it. It kind of it's a good metaphor, but he just it doesn't have to go for a you know, most of a page. It also captures the inevitability of the motion. Once an attack is committed to from above the large cogs, it's impossible to change it as a smaller gear. The thing I don't like about some metaphors is like if the metaphor is no less confusing than the thing you're trying to describe, then just describe the thing you're describing. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know how the inside of a clock works, but I know how large masses of people organized into subgroups works, you know, i.e. an army. And I just feel like that's, you don't really need to compare it to a, 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 what's it called? A metaphor. Dolgorokov doesn't seem too interested in a new battle plan, no matter how good it may be. He seems very certain about the course of action they must take and isn't too concerned about what the older, more experienced officers think. doesn't feel too good as we head into the next chapters. Um, Warren Kovofi says, To keep things simple, the clock metaphor was a beautiful way of describing some of the decisions in war, and yes, I do believe it is an accurate way of explaining the workings of the military. The writing throughout War and Peace has been excellent but I feel like some of the finest examples have been in the last couple of chapters yeah I really liked how that metaphor wrapped up with like the tick of the clock is just like a tick of human history you know the whole all of the complexity of an army moving to battle and fighting and winning or losing is just a little tick on the clock of human history I thought that was cool um I know I'm in the minority when I say this as well, that I don't really like the way he does that, though, with metaphors. There's one later in the book where he literally just describes a beehive for half a chapter, um, comparing it to something else. I can't really remember what it even was. I just remember a beehive being described for ages. And a lot of people were saying that that was their favourite bit of the book so far, and they loved it. And uh, it was the same vibe for me. Like I just felt like he learned about beehives that day and wanted to show off that he knows how they work. Uh, and the metaphor that he's actually trying to describe is stretched so thin that it just becomes uh, not really effective as a tool of explanation. 
Warren Kavafifi also said, The thing I noticed is that just about everyone wants to battle with the French quickly. Everyone except Kutuzov. Andre wants to gain recognition with his own strategies being used by the military, while Dolgurikov seems like he just wants to attack with no real strategy since their numbers are so strong and because all the possibilities have been foreseen. With the arrival of the Tsar and the Russian army's recent victories, I think they want to strike while the iron is hot, but they are really overestimating their own strength and rushing things. I don't really remember how this battle goes down or what happens or what Napoleon was trying to pull off here, if anything, but I feel like, like my gut feeling is um, Dolgorukov had the sense that Napoleon was scared of a fight and they were kept retreating from little skirmishes and they're on the back foot, they're running. And, um, you know, having seen what they've done so far, it makes me feel like, is Napoleon playing them? You know, is he trying to bait them into a fight by seeming like he's scared of it and trying to pull away, pull away, but he's just baiting them further? That's how it feels to me. Um... Luckily for you guys, I can say that without spoiling anything because I genuinely don't remember. Um, anyway, let's read chapter 12. It goes like this. Shortly after 9 o'clock that evening, Weyrother drove with his plans to Kutuzov's quarters where the council of war was to be held. By the way, we're reading Maud's version today. I didn't get a chance to um, translate this chapter. All the commanders of columns were summoned to the commander-in-chiefs, and with the exception of Prince Bagration, who declined to come, were all there at the appointed time. Weyrother, who was in full control of the proposed battle, by his eagerness and briskness presented a marked contrast to the dissatisfied and drowsy Kutuzov, who reluctantly played the part of chairman and president of the Council of War. Weyrother evidently felt himself to be at the head of a movement that had already become unrestrainable. He was like a horse running downhill harnessed to a heavy cart. Whether he was pulling it or being pushed by it, he did not know, but rushed along at headlong speed with no time to consider what this movement might lead to. Weyrother had been twice that evening to the enemy's picket line to reconnoiter personally, and twice to the Emperor's Russian and Austrian to report and explain, and to his headquarters where he had dictated the dispositions in German, and now much exhausted, he arrived at Kutuzov's. He was evidently so busy that he had even forgotten to be polite to the commander-in-chief. He interrupted him, talked rapidly and indistinctly without looking at the man as he was addressing him, and did not reply to questions put to him. He was bespattered with mud and had a pitiful, weary and distracted air, though at the same time he was haughty and self-confident. Kutuzov was occupying a nobleman's castle of modest dimensions near Australitz, in the large drawing-room which had become the commander-in-chief's office where work gathered Kutuzov himself, Weyrother, and the members of the Council of War. They were drinking tea and only awaited Prince Bagration to begin the council. At last Bagration's orderly came with the news that the prince could not attend. Prince Andrei, Andre came in to inform the commander-in-chief of this and availing himself of permission previously given him by Kutuzov to be present at the council, he remained in the room. Since Prince Bagration is not coming, we may begin, said Weyrother, hurriedly rising from his seat and going up to the table on which an enormous map of the Enverions of Brun was spread out. Kutuzov, with his uniform unbuttoned so that his fat neck bulged over his collar as if escaping, was sitting almost asleep in a low chair with his podgy old hands resting symmetrically on its arms. At the sound of Weyrother's voice, he opened his one eye with an effort. Yes, yes, if you please. It's already late. 
said he, and nodding his head, he let it droop again and closed his eyes. If at first the members of the council thought that Kutuzov was pretending to sleep, the sounds of his nose, em the sounds his nose emitted during the reading that followed, proved that the commander-in-chief at that moment was absorbed by a far more serious matter than a desire to show his contempt for the dispositions or anything else. He was engaged in satisfying the irresistible human need for sleep. He really was asleep. Way brother, with the gesture of a man too busy to lose a moment, glanced at Kutuzov and, having convinced himself that he was asleep, took up a paper and, in a loud, monotonous voice, began to read out the dispositions for the impending battle under a heading which he also read out, dispositions for an attack on the enemy positions behind Kobolnitz and Sokolnitz on November 30th, 1805. The dispositions were very complicated and difficult. They began as follows. As the enemy's left wing rests on wooded hills and his right extends along Kobolnitz and Sokolnitz behind the ponds that are there, while we, on the other hand, with our left wing by far outflank his right, it is advantageous to attack the enemy's latter wing, especially if we occupy the villages of Sokolnitz and Kobolnitz, whereby we can both fall on his flank and pursue him over the plains between Schlapnitz and Therusa Forest, avoiding the defiles of Schlapnitz and Balowitz, which cover the enemy's front. For this object it is necessary that the first column marches, the second column marches, the third column marches, and so on, read Weyrother. The generals seemed to listen reluctantly to the difficult dispositions. The tall, fair-haired General Boxhalden stood, leaning his back against the wall, his eyes fixed on a burning candle, and seemed not to listen or even to wish to be thought to listen. Exactly opposite way, rather, with his glistening wide-open eyes, fixed upon him, and his moustache twisted upwards, sat the ruddy Milorodovich in a military pose, his elbows turned outwards, his hands on his knees and his shoulders raised. He remained stubbornly silent, gazing at Weyrother's face, and only turned away his eyes when the Austrian chief of staff finished reading. Then Miloradovich looked round significantly at the other generals, but one could not tell from that significant look whether he agreed or disagreed, and was satisfied or not with the arrangements. Next to Weyrother sat Count Langeron, who, with a subtle smile that never left his typically southern French face during the whole time of the reading, gazed at his delicate fingers which rapidly twirled by its corners a gold snuff-box on which was a portrait. In the middle of one of the longest sentences he stopped the rotary motion of the snuff-box, raised his head, and with inimical politeness lurking in the corners of his thin lips, interrupted way rather wishing to say something, but the Austrian general, continuing to read, frowned angrily and jerked his elbows, as if to say, you can tell me your views later, but now be so good as to look at the map and listen. Langeron lifted his eyes with an expression of perplexity, turned round to Milorodovich, as if seeking an explanation, but meeting the latter's impressive but meaningless gaze, drooped his eyes sadly and again took to twirling the snuff-box. A geography lesson, he muttered as if to himself, but loud enough to be heard. Presbyzwezgi, with respectful and dignified politeness, held his hand to his ear toward Rayrother, with the air of a man absorbed in attention. Doc Turov, a little man, sat opposite Weyrother, with an assiduous and modest mien, and stooping over the outspread map, conscientiously studied the dispositions and the unfamiliar locality. He asked Weyrother several times to repeat words he had not clearly heard, and the difficult names of villages. Weyrother complied, and Doc Turov noted them down. 
When the reading, which lasted more than an hour, was over, Langeron again brought his snuff-box to rest and, without looking at Wayruther or at anyone in particular, began to say how difficult it was to carry out such a plan in which the enemy's position was assumed to be known, whereas it was perhaps not known, since the enemy was in movement. Langeron's objections were valid, but it was obvious that their chief aim was to show General Wayruther who had read his dispositions with as much self-confidence as if he were addressing school children, that he had to not had to do not with fools but with men who could teach him something in military matters. When the monotonous sound of Wayruther's voice ceased, Kutuzov opened his eyes as a miller wakes up when a soporific drone of the mill wheel is interrupted. He listened to what Langeron said, as, as if remarking, so you are still at that silly business quickly closed his eye again and let his head sink still lower. Langeron, trying as virulently as possible to sting Wayruther's vanity as author of the military plan, argued that Bonaparte might easily attack instead of being attacked, and so render the whole of this plan perfectly worthless. Wayruther met with all objections with a firm and contemptuous smile, evidently prepared beforehand to meet all objections, but they, be they what they might. If he could attack us, he would have done so today, said he. So you think he's powerless, said Langeron. He has 40,000 men at most, replied Wayruther, with the smile of a doctor to whom an old wife wishes to explain the treatment of a case. In that case, he is inviting his doom by awaiting our attack, said Langeron, with a subtly ironical smile, again glancing round for support to Miladorovich, who was near him. But Miladorovich was at that moment evidently thinking of anything rather than of what the generals were disputing about. "'Ma foi,' said he, "'tomorrow we shall see all that on the battlefield.' Wayruther again gave that smile which seemed to say to, that to him it was strange and ridiculous to meet objections from Russian generals and to have to prove to them what he had not merely convinced himself of but had also convinced the sovereign emperors of. "'The enemy has quenched his fires,' and a continual noise is heard from his camp, said he. What does that mean? Either he is retreating, which is the only thing we need fear, or he is changing his position, he smiled ironically. But even if he also took up a position in the Therosara, he merely saves us a great deal of trouble, and all our arrangements to the minutest detail remain the same. How is that? began Prince Andre, who had for a long time been waiting an opportunity to express his doubts. Kutuzov here woke up, coughed heavily, and looked around at the generals. Gentlemen, the dispositions for tomorrow, or rather for today, for it is past midnight, cannot now be altered, said he. You have heard them, and we shall all do our duty. But before battle there is nothing more important, he paused, than a good night of sleep. He moved as if to rise, the generals bowed and retired. It was past midnight, Prince Andre went out. The council of war at which Prince Andre had not been able to express his opinion, as he had hoped to, left on him a vague and uneasy impression whether Dolgorokov and Wayruther, or to Kutuzov, Langeron, and the others, who did not approve of the plan of attack, were right. He did not know. But was it really not possible for Kutuzov to state his views plainly to the emperor? Is it possible that on account of court and personal considerations tens of thousands of lives, and my life, my life, he thought, must be risked? Yes, it is very likely that I shall be killed tomorrow he thought, and suddenly, at this thought of death, a whole series of most distant, most intimate memories rose in his imagination. He remembered his last parting from his father and his wife. 
He remembered the days when he first loved her. He thought of her pregnancy and felt sorry for her and for himself. And in a nervous, emotional and softened mood, he went out of the hut in which he was billeted with Nesvitsky and began to walk up and down before it. The night was foggy and through the fog the moonlight gleamed mysteriously. Yes, tomorrow, tomorrow, he thought. Tomorrow everything may be over for me. All these memories will be no more. None of them will have any meaning for me. Tomorrow, perhaps even certainly, I have a presentiment that for the first time I shall have to show all I can do. And his fancy pictured the battle, its loss, the concentration of fighting at one point and the hesitation of all the commanders, and then that happy moment that Toulon, for which he had so long waited, presents itself to him at last. He firmly and clearly expresses his opinion to Kutuzov, to Weyrother and to the emperors, all are struck by the justness of his views, but no one understands, no one undertakes to carry them out. So he takes a regiment, a division, stipulates that no one is to interfere with his arrangements, leads his division to the decisive point and gains the victory alone. But death and suffering, suggested another voice. Prince Andre, however, did not answer that voice and went on dreaming of his triumphs. The dispositions for the next battle are planned by him alone. Nominally, he is only an adjutant to Kutuzov's staff, but he does everything alone. The next battle is won by him alone. Kutuzov is removed and he is appointed. Well, and then, asked the other voice, if before that you are not ten times wounded, killed or betrayed, well, what then? Well, then, Prince Andre answered himself, I don't know what will happen. I don't want to know. And I can't. But if I want this, want glory want to be known to men, want to be loved by them. It is not my fault that I want it, and want nothing but that, and live only for that, yes, for that alone. I shall never tell anyone, but, oh God, what am I to do if I love nothing but fame and men's esteem, death, wounds, the loss of family? I fear nothing, and precious and dear as many persons are to me, father, sister, wife, those dearest to me, yet dreadful and unnatural as it seems, I would give them all at once, for a moment of glory, of triumph over men, of love from men, I don't know and never shall know, for the love of these men here, he thought, as he listened to voices in Kutuzov's courtyard. The voices were those of the orderlies who were packing up. One voice, probably a coachman's, was teasing Kutuzov's old cook, whom Prince Andre knew, and who was called Tit. He was saying, Tit, I say Tit. Well, returned the old man, Go, tit, thresh a bit, said the wag. Oh, go to the devil, called out a voice, drowned by the laughter of the orderlies, orderlies and servants. All the same, I love and value nothing but triumph over them all. I value this mystic power and glory that is floating here above me in this mist. All right, there we go. There's that chapter. Chapter 12. Uh, cool, I guess. Have your say about that one over at the subreddit. I think some stuff's going to go down tomorrow by the sounds of things. All right. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.